Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here in the room and online as well. After God delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, those stubborn, thankless, rebellious people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And when they finally entered the promised land of Canaan, they didn't defeat and eject their enemies as thoroughly as God commanded. And because of that, those enemies became a persistent thorn in their side. They hung around making life hard on the Israelites for years. And when those Israelites fell into patterns of sin, God would use those surrounding nations to discipline his hard-hearted people. They would be overtaken and oppressed. Eventually, the people would realize the error of their ways, repent of their sin, and cry out to God for help. God would then send a leader, known as a judge, and he would deliver them. And then once the Israelites were out from under their enemy's thumb, they would promise that they had finally learned their lesson. Now, of course, they never really did. The same thing would happen over and over and over again. Eventually, a man named Eli became judge over Israel. And while Eli meant well, he allowed his ungodly sons to walk all over him and all over the people. So God appointed a young man named Samuel to replace Eli. And while Samuel was a good man who loved God, he fell into the same trap that Eli did. Samuel's sons were corrupt as well, and Israel suffered under their injustice. This caused the Israelites to lose patience with the entire system of judges. They were ready for something new, something different, something more like what all the other nations had. The Israelites wanted a king. Samuel warned them about the dangers of worldly kings. He told them that they didn't fully understand the ramifications, the consequences of their request. He reminded them that earthly kings are known to oppress, exploit, abuse, And maybe the most ghastly of all, tax their people. He prophesied that the Israelites would come to regret this decision and cry out to God like they always had before. But this time, God wouldn't hear them. But the Israelites still wouldn't budge. They wanted to be like their neighbors. They were tired of judges like Eli and his sons. They were tired of judges like Samuel and his sons. And while they may not have come out and said it, they were tired of God being their only king. So God did one of the worst things he could ever do. He gave the people what they wanted. God commanded Samuel to appoint a worldly king over the nation of Israel. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to read about some of the worst earthly kings that Israel would ever have. Some were better, some were worse than others. Some still managed to accomplish good things here and there. But at the end of the day, they were all, 
to some extent, in one way or another, royal failures. So as we read their stories, we're aimed to learn some valuable lessons about them, learn some valuable lessons about God, and even learn some valuable lessons about ourselves. So we'll start this morning with Israel's first formal king, a man by the name of Saul. So open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Feel free to follow along here and at home as well. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have to worship you. And thank you that as we look outside, uh, we maybe see a small example of what life is like in the big scheme of things. Uh, On the one hand, we live in a world that you have created, and so it's beautiful. But on the other hand, we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, and so it's miserable. Uh, So Lord, remind us that we have much to thank you for in this world in which we live, but we also have much to look forward to, uh, that the world as we see it, the world as we know it, uh, is not our true home, uh, is not as it should be. And we look forward to the day when Christ returns and redeems this world in which we live uh, as he has already redeemed us by faith. And thank you for the opportunity to worship you uh, here in the room. Uh, Be with us. I pray that you keep us safe and and healthy. Uh, I pray for those at home that uh, they would be able to get rid of distractions and, and focus on you worshiping from couches and beds and recliners. And Lord, I pray that all of our worship, uh, here and elsewhere, would be honoring to you. And if nothing else, uh, kind of as Rick mentioned a minute ago, uh, maybe these stories that we'll read today and in the weeks ahead uh, remind us that we're not the first people uh, to live in some chaotic situations. Uh, And so God, ground us uh, in that reality, that understanding. Help us not to get too panicked, too worked up over circumstances around us. And to trust that if you were sovereign uh, and good in the craziness of the stories that we'll read, you are still sovereign and you are still good in our world now. So, Lord, again, thank you for these people, this place, this time we have together. We love you. We worship you. Thank you for your word and your son and your spirit. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So if you could custom design the perfect king, throw all the right ingredients, and then have a perfect king pop out, at least on the outside, you'd get Saul. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He's from a noble family. He's the kind of guy you'd cast in a movie. He just has the look. And Saul, eventually, with God's direction runs into Samuel. 
Everyone knows that Samuel is the prophet in Israel. And everyone knows that Samuel is looking for Israel's first king. So chapter 9, verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So Samuel obeys God's voice, pulls Saul aside, and privately anoints him king of Israel. He gives Saul three big tasks. And his first day as king. Number one, confront the Philistines, Israel's biggest rival. Number two, prophesy. And then number three, wait. Saul fails at the first task. He never really does confront the Philistines, at least not yet. He accomplishes the second task. With God's help, Saul prophesies. But the third task... Waiting for Samuel, that one's still pending. Nevertheless, Samuel publicly announces Saul as king, even though Saul would rather hide behind the luggage cart. So all things considered, Saul is not off to a terrible start. He's one for two in his first royal tasks, and if you hit 500 in baseball, you're the best hitter of all time. Saul even goes on to win a few key battles, And as always, he looks good doing it. Samuel even issues a farewell address. It appears that with Saul at the wheel, Samuel can start thinking about retirement. But remember that third task? The one that Saul hasn't accomplished yet? He still hasn't waited for Samuel. And the waiting is the hardest part. Chapter 13, starting in verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Funny how that works out, isn't it? It's almost like it was some kind of test. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul failed in one task already, and here he fails again. He got nervous. He got impatient. He saw that he was losing support from the people as the enemy was bearing down on him. And he worried that without the ceremonial sacrifice to God, without throwing the big guy a bone to buy his blessing, God wouldn't help him win the battle. So Saul disobeys Samuel. He disobeys God. And he takes things into his own hands by offering the sacrifice himself. When Saul did that, he exposed himself as unbelieving, untrusting, and ungodly. Words that should never be used to describe a king over God's people. His reign was doomed before it truly got off the ground. As a result, someone else will be king. Someone who does believe God, someone who does trust God, someone who does pursue God, someone who doesn't just look the part, but lives it, someone after God's heart, instead of being so easily led astray by his own. Now, from there, things only get worse for Saul. Though he's been exposed as an illegitimate and unqualified king, Saul holds on to the throne. His son Jonathan proves to be more capable and more respectable than he is. Like we saw in chapter 13, when Saul was in a tough spot, he once again tries to take things into his own hands. For Saul, seeking God's counsel is an afterthought. He keeps fighting his enemies. But he never truly routes them, as God commanded, to the point that Samuel has to do his dirty work for him. Saul would occasionally offer some words of repentance, occasionally offer some words of praise, but his actions spoke louder. Time and time again, Saul proves himself unfit to be Israel's king. He shows why God has rejected him. And he proves to the Israelites that Samuel's warning about requesting a king, it was all true. Chapter 15, verse 28. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This new king, The neighbor better than Saul is David. No, David is not as physically imposing as Saul. And no, he may not have as impressive of a pedigree. But David is a man after God's own heart. And he proves it by defeating Goliath in battle and delivering Israel while Saul stood on the sidelines. The people grow to love David. His popularity skyrockets. Saul's own children love David. David marries Saul's daughter and becomes close friends with his son. But Saul? 
Well, Saul continues his downward spiral. He grows more rebellious, more jealous, more paranoid every day to the point of trying to kill David. And it's not just David who suffers from Saul's decline. It's visible and it's dangerous to the entire nation of Israel. Saul murders a group of priests who gave David safe harbor. He invests all of his military resources in pursuing David, even after David graciously spares his life while the enemy is knocking on the door. Saul stops consulting with God entirely and instead consults with a medium, an egregious violation of God's law. Saul would eventually die in battle by his own sword. His final act of taking things into his own hands rather than entrusting himself to God. His life ends much like Goliath's life ended. And at the end of his reign, the Philistines that Saul was appointed to defeat, they were stronger than ever. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. The people were groaning under Saul. So now you know know a bit more biblical history. And that's all well and good. But practically speaking, what lessons might you learn from the royal failure that is King Saul? Well, first... Looking the part is not and never has been enough. While Saul may have looked like a righteous, respectable, God-fearing king on the inside, on the outside, he wasn't after God's heart on the inside. Saul was an empty suit. He was physically large, but spiritually small. And being king over God's people, or in our case, simply being a follower of Jesus, it's not a matter of just looking good on the outside. It's not about exterior behavior modification. It's not about cleaning your act up, that way you can show up at church. It's not about keeping up appearances to gain or maintain entry into the club. It's about being after God's own heart. Christians, men and women of God, sons and daughters of God, followers of Jesus, are those who have been changed on the inside by God's grace. In Jesus' words from John chapter 3, we are those born again of the Spirit. We're changed on the inside before And in order to change on the outside, Saul was not a man after God's own heart internally. And with time and pressure, that truth became evident externally. The same is true for followers of Jesus. Eventually, it will be made known if we just look the part rather than being truly redeemed And transformed by God's grace. The second lesson we might take away from Saul is that trusting in ourselves for deliverance, for meaning, for strength, 
for salvation, really anything of eternal significance, that is a fool's errand. You know, the only time Saul really did anything good was when God brought it about. When Saul was empowered by God, when Saul consulted with God, there may have been some good fruit there. But when Saul chose to overrule God's commands and take things into his own hands, he fell flat on his face. Saul apparently forgot that while he may have been the king of Israel, he was still only second in command. Adam and Eve made the same mistake in the Garden of Eden. When they tried to usurp God's authority, everything unraveled. And we followed in their footsteps. When we arrogantly assume that we know better than God, when we naively assume that we can get by without him, we are destined for failure. When we convince ourselves that we're the true kings and queens of our stories, when we commit spiritual treason against the king of the universe, the God who gave us life, when we do that, we deserve worse than just temporal failure. We deserve eternal condemnation. Trusting in ourselves, taking things into our own hands, thinking that we do not need God, it's a fool's errand. And third, Saul's story is a cautionary tale about the progressive nature of sin. You know, Saul wasn't a monster from the beginning. He was a reluctant, shy young man thrust into a position of power and responsibility that he didn't ask for. You almost feel sympathetic for him. But then once Saul got there, when it was unchecked, his sin became gradually more evident and gradually more extreme. It started with picking and choosing God's commands. We've all done that, right? But it turned into utter rejection of God's commands. It started with not seeking God enough. We've been guilty of that, too. But it turned into not seeking God at all. It started with jealousy. I mean, who amongst us hasn't been jealous? But it turned into bloodthirst. Saul did not become a villain overnight. The same way you don't gain 50 pounds from one extra bowl of ice cream. Falling into sin is often a slow and steady descent. To the point that you look up one day and have no idea how you got there, can no longer even recognize who you are, and find yourself doing things casually now that were once unthinkable. That's how sin works. Each compromise builds and builds and builds that tiny snowball that can't really hurt anyone and that nobody's going to find out about into a destructive avalanche. If you give sin an inch, it takes a mile over and over and over again. Beware the progressive nature of sin. Just ask Saul. So you know a little bit more Old Testament history 
And maybe there are some practical takeaways from this story. But what's it got to do with Jesus? After Saul died, David took his rightful place on the throne. And it's all good, right? David's in charge. He'll fix things. He'll be the king that Israel needed and not the worldly king they wanted. He'll be the man after God's own heart that Saul should have been. Right? Well, not exactly. Though David's legacy is certainly better than Saul's, David carried the same virus that Saul did. David was a sinner. Not even David was up to the task of being the king God's people needed. As a sinner, David could not embody the holy God fully. He could not represent him completely. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. But a new king would come after David from David's line. A king who was up to that task of embodying God perfectly and representing him completely. The royal failures of the Old Testament, this one and all the other ones we'll read about, ultimately prove what God already knew and point people's eyes to what God would one day provide. God would send a king untouched by sin. A king who was fully man, but not merely man. A king who was God himself. That king is Jesus, the son of David, sent to deliver God's people not from Philistines and not from Ammonites and not from Goliath, but sent to deliver us from the enemy within, sin itself. So as believers in Jesus, we follow this king. The one man completely after God's own heart because he shares God's heart. The only human king who didn't end up a royal failure. He died for our sins on the cross, rose from the dead, and rules and reigns at God's right hand as we speak, and one day will return with his kingdom in tow. And thanks to him, we no longer have to try to be our own rulers. And thank God for that. Because trying to be the king or the queen of your world, taking everything into your hands, putting all your hope, all your confidence in fellow sinners, none of that will ever end in salvation. It will only end in disappointment, in judgment, in failure. So turn to someone better than Saul. Someone better than David. Someone better than you. Turn to Jesus and worship him as the one true king that he really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this portion of your word. This portion of your word that's often skipped over, neglected. We tend to forget Saul because we're ready to read about David We think he's just kind of the guy who came before. But there are lessons here that we can learn. And so, Lord, remind us of the progressive nature of sin and help us fight against it. Remind us that we cannot, should not, do not trust in ourselves as your people. 
And Lord, remind us that being one of your people is not about just looking the part. It's not just about saying the right words. It's not just about jumping through the right hoops. But being your sons, being your daughters, being your servants, that starts with a work of your grace from the inside out. And so, Lord, remind us of that every day. Fill us with your spirit day in and day out so that we can be the people you've called us to be in the truest sense rather than just acting the right way or looking the right way. Lord, thank you for the examples that you give us in your word and even today in our current world that remind us of the failures of kings, the failures of men and women, the failures of humanity, and the disappointments that we see in this fallen world. Lord, remind us and and point our eyes to Christ. When we see the failures of the world, when we see just how messed up things are, I pray that it wouldn't lead us to despair, but rather you would raise our eyes to something higher, something better. Raise our eyes to Christ. We love you. We worship you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.